So for those of you who are familiar with the reflections uh, that I give, will know that I typically like to string together um, most, if not all, of the uh, lectionary readings for any particular Sunday. Uh, so this is going to be a little bit of a change because I am only going to be drawing on Matthew, um, the scripture that Chris just uh, read. Thank you very much, Ginny, for your reading. I am not using it. Uh, and the other thing about this scripture today is I think most of us are pretty familiar with it, or at least we've heard scriptures on, or heard uh, pieces of these of this scripture and heard sermons on any given piece in this set of, in this scripture passage. Uh, but another way in which I'm going to kind of switch things up from what at least I'm familiar with, what you might be familiar with, is I'm really going to be going piece by piece to string it all together. Because I, I think that we get much, much more insight of, into what Christ was getting at uh, when we don't, you know, split things apart, but when we see the entire puzzle put together. So starting with verse 24. A disciple is not above the teacher, nor a slave above the master. It is enough for this disciple to be like the teacher and the slave like the master. If they have called, and sorry, this is, I think, the, the crucial part that gets left out. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So in past reflections or sermons that you may have heard. We talk about this being a, a passage commanding us to respect uh, our teachers or those who might be in authority of us. Um, also, this is a tricky uh, passage for those of us who um, would rather the Bible not um, cast slavery in at least a um, neutral light. Uh, I really don't think that this is a passage about slaves obeying their masters. Rather, Jesus is drawing from a structure that exists to explain the concept that I highlighted there. He's preparing his followers for persecution, uh, or at the very least, opposition. Um, he's essentially saying, they have called me mean and nasty things, and you are my followers. You don't, people typically don't criticize, you know, the leader, but then uh, just absolve all of the followers. They, typically, the followers can expect as bad, if not worse, treatment than those they are following. Uh, so, and this, if you look at this, then it ties much better into the next chunk, which is verses 26 and 27. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered, and nothing secret that will not become known. What I say to you in the dark, tell in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim from the housetops. So in this passage, it's, it's a little bit of a 
a comfort, if not, you know, call to follow God in spite of, of opposition, um, you can also get a sense of this notion of kind of the inevitability of truth eventually being found out. Um, we have this notion in kind of, I'll say North America at least, um, that if something gets covered up, if, if there's a lie, that we kind of have this sense of inevitability that eventually the truth is going to be brought to light. Maybe the people who have done what is wrong, maybe the people who have lied won't get consequences, but eventually there will at least be some sort of poetic justice, if you will, or, you know, eventually we're going to find out who did what and who was wrong and who was right. But this isn't necessarily a, new, um, a universal attitude uh, around the world. Um, now, part of why we have this attitude here may be because of the influence of Christianity on our culture. Um, if any of you uh, have seen the uh, Freakonomics documentary, one thing they talk about is uh, the kind of culture of uh, cheating in Japanese sumo wrestling. And one thing that they kind of um, mention in that um, is that, at least in, in their understanding of Japanese culture, is that there isn't this notion of the truth being found out. There is more of a notion that, yeah, sometimes things get hidden up and the truth is just never brought to light. Um, and that's not meant to, to criti criticize Japanese culture, but I think it's important to know that um, that sense of inevitability of truth being found out isn't universal. Um, and Jesus seems to be um, supporting that uh, notion of inevitability. Um, but I think part of that is because he makes this demand, uh, command to his followers. What I say to you in the dark, tell in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim from the housetops. So Christ is, in a sense, giving us the responsibility um, to see that uh, tr God's truth and truth in general is uh, brought to light. Which leads us nicely, kind of gives us this common thread of preparing us for persecution and opposition. Uh, verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. So Christ is essentially saying, yes, there are going to be consequences to honoring God and to doing God's will, but these are better, ultimately, than the consequences of disobeying God. Which brings us further. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And even the hairs of your head are all counted. So do not be afraid. You are of more value than many sparrows. And this can be a really frustrating passage when you have personal experience with people who are experiencing poverty because it does not seem like God is caring for them or God is in control. 
And not to, I, I don't mean this to um, sort of contradict uh, past interpretations of this passage, but I think when we see this as specifically being about God caring for those who follow and face opposition, uh, this makes more sense. God is essentially saying, I am not sending you out and then forgetting you. No matter what's going on, I am, I am watching, I am caring for you, I am in control of this, regardless of what you experience. Because I don't even, I don't even let sparrows die without me knowing about it and without me having some degree of control over the situation. Uh, and you're so much more valuable than a sparrow. So it doesn't make sense that, you know, that God would be sending us out and then forgetting about us. So it, in that context of facing opposition, this passage probably makes a lot more sense than what you may have you know, previously understood. Um, and then verses 32 and 33. Everyone, therefore, who acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. This is kind of a callback to verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. It's, this greater supports the idea that this should be interpreted as a whole, not just in pieces. Um, because, again, Jesus is saying this all together. He's weaving a common thread here. Um, and then going to verse uh, 34 through 36, which is probably a little difficult for uh, peace-seeking Anabaptists to square with the rest of our understanding of the Gospels. Do not think that I have come to be, bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And one's foes will be members of one's own household. <laughs> not easy for us, but when you keep in mind the rest of this, Jesus isn't necessarily saying that his father followers will hold the sword, so to speak. What he's saying is essentially in this context of facing opposition that his followers are not going to necessarily experience peace. They're often going to find themselves at odds with members even of their own households, members of people that they like, that they care, care about. Um, but that in spite of it all, we're still called to, to love our neighbors as ourselves. We're still called to spread God's truth and you know, do God's will, even though this doesn't necessarily look like um, peace and happiness and everyone getting along. It also 
to me implies some time happening between what we now know to be Christ's ascension and the full uh, completion of God's kingdom. One criticism that comes up, uh, you know, of people reading the Gospels is that, oh, you know, Jesus seemed to think that, uh, you know, it was just, you know, he'd die on the cross, he'd go to heaven, and then, you know, within maybe a few decades, we'd have the full completion of God's kingdom. This seems to go a little bit in the face of that and seems to imply that, you know, whatever Christ prophesied happening shortly after his death and resurrection and ascension, um, that it would, would not be the full completion of God's kingdom, that there was going to be some time of us experiencing uh, conflict so moving on to verse, uh, <clears throat> verses 37 and 38. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. This, again, fits nicely in with our past uh, scriptures to the point where I thought about not even breaking them apart. Um, but it's essentially, you know, we're not to sacrifice God's work um, in order to maintain familial harmony, um, which somewhat challenges um, contemporary Christian notion, uh, notions of family values. Um, many of us have probably grown up with the idea that you know, serving your family is serving God, and serving God is serving your family. Um, this tends to run a bit in the face of it. Um, for one thing, and you know, maybe Chris would know more about this. Our contemporary uh, notions of sort of the 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 godly uh, nuclear family. Uh, really came around in the 50s. Um, not all of them. There, there's, it, it's messy, but this notion that, you know, strong families equal strong church and strong society really goes in the face of what Christ himself said. Uh, you know, Christ is telling us that um, really God's work comes before um, any notions of uh, familial harmony and that God takes priority over that. Um, and I think probably the verse here, and I'm so glad that the lectionary includes this verse, those who find their life will lose it and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. And this really sets the notion of sort of a self-focused self-actualization against a more communal approach to life. Um, and it seems contradictory. It seems like, you know, if you take care of yourself, and work on self-actualization, you know, actualizing your own life. Um, 
you know, finding your own wealth, your own prosperity, your own connections, your own status uh, would make your life better. But um, Jesus goes in the face of that and says, no, actually, if you try to do all of that, you will lose your life. You will find yourself unsatisfied. If you really want to make the most of your life and if you want to honor me, what you really do is you have to in a sense, lose your life to God's work and to your, God's work for you specifically in community. Um, so many of you may be familiar with a lot of recent, uh, you know, kind of self-care talk. And not that that's necessarily bad, but at least in my sort of anecdotal experience, the people I know who get really into self-care do not seem very happy. Uh, <laughs> and, and in fact, um, you know, there's kind of this phenomenon that folks have noticed about sort of the weaponization of therapy speak of, you know, saying, you know, maybe I don't have space for you, you know, to, to accept your issues uh, when talking to a close friend. Um, <laughs> And it's, some have even likened it to like HR speak in a corporate sense. Um, and yeah, uh, there, there seems to be this dark side to um, taking care of yourself where it doesn't ultimately result in happiness. However, if you look at losing life and finding it, um, you know, that I've spoken a lot about um, community and God's desire for us to, to be together as a church. Um, it, uh, sorry, I, um, <clears throat> this actually brings me um, to a, a podcast I recently came across because I listened to way too many of those. Um, it was... Um, Matthew Desmond being interviewed on Adam Conover's podcast. So um, if you're familiar with the book Evicted, uh, he's the guy who wrote that. Um, and he recently wrote another book called Poverty by America. And something he kind of touched on throughout but really got into at the end is this, um, this idea of you know, kind of building up personal wealth for us as Americans versus fighting poverty and his personal experiences fighting poverty um, within a larger community. Uh, he mentioned how much of the middle class in the U.S. receives a lot of tax breaks on the interest that they pay on their mortgages. Um, in particular, in a way that harms those who rent and takes resources away from public housing. And one thing he mentioned, or one thing that both of them mentioned was that, you know, it, it's kind of led us to be a more atomized society. You know, we don't necessarily have as many parks, we just have a large backyard. You know, we don't necessarily have that many public pools, just some people have pools in their backyard. 
And one thing he mentioned was, you know, looking at social media and people seeing like people like argue about cancel culture. He's like, I don't know who these people are and they don't seem to have very much joy in their lives. And I honestly do not know whether he was referring to the people criticizing or those supporting whatever you would call cancel culture. But one thing he mentioned was that he has been a part of various anti-poverty movements in his experience. And fighting poverty specifically in a way that challenges not necessarily capitalism itself, but our current neoliberal version of it um, and the status quo in challenging the tax breaks that a lot of wealthy people have really seems to me like a Sisyphean task. It is very much the task of trying to roll a boulder up a hill only for it to roll back down again. But one thing he mentioned was just the intense joy that he felt being a part of these communities, um, you know, fighting against landlords who are breaking the law and, you know, working to make life easier for people who are renting. And that just seemed to perfectly embody this passage. Those who find their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. So, I guess in conclusion here, I just really um, encourage us to, you know, not simply look at individual scriptures or, you know, a couple scriptures, but really look at passages altogether. And then to also find that, um, or to just really reflect on verse 39, those who find their life will lose it and those who lose their life for my sake will find it.